Welcome to On the Middle East, the podcast of the award-winning media service, El Monitor, where each week we talk with the decision makers and thought leaders who are making the news and shaping the trends in the Middle East. I'm Andrew Parasoliti, president of El Monitor, and our guest this week is former Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for the Middle East, Mick Mulroy. Mick and I will be talking about why the U.S. needs to stay engaged in the Middle East, including to prevent ISIS 2.0 in Iraq and Syria, the prospects for the U.S.-Saudi partnership in the future of Yemen, and whether and how U.S. partners in the region could endorse a new Iran deal. Now, before I bring Mick in, let me mention something on my mind, which I wrote about in last week's Week in Review. A sequel to the Arab Spring may have started two years ago this month in Sudan. In December 2018, protests started against President Omar al-Bashir, a dictator and war criminal, who was finally deposed in April 2019 and replaced by what's called a Joint Military-Civilian Sovereignty Council. Now, what happened in Sudan may have foreshadowed the latest wave of demonstrations in the region. That's what we wrote in October 2019, referring in particular to demonstrations that began that year in Iraq, Algeria, and Lebanon, as well as elsewhere in the Middle East. Now, many of this new wave of demonstrators are young, non-sectarian, and took to the streets to demand a new social contract based on transparency and accountability as well as jobs and decent government services. Although the sequel isn't the full-scale to the ramparts protests of the first Arab Spring, and this current sequel is still a work in progress, the impact of the latest populist movements is already apparent despite the restrictions of the COVID-19 pandemic. In Algeria, for example, protests led last year to the ouster of President Abdulaziz Bouteflika, who had served for 20 years. In Iraq, Prime Minister Adel Abdul Mahdi eventually gave in to pressures to resign and stepped down, replaced by Mustafa Al-Khadami, who has advanced a careful and systematic program of reform. In Lebanon, there is still no government in place following the catastrophic explosion at Beirut's port in August, and the economy continues to spiral downward. But let me come back to Sudan to conclude with a general observation. The hope for reform in Sudan, as in most countries, eventually shifts from the exhilaration and electricity of the street in the hope for change to agonizing and detailed discussions among bankers and bureaucrats with the International Monetary Fund and other international financial institutions. Sudanese Prime Minister Hamdak has requested IMF help, but even when the United States clears accounts with Sudan following its removal from the US terrorist list, Khartoum may still, at least for a while, be shut out of IMF help because of massive external debt and arrears to the IMF and other creditors. Many reforms required to address bloated and failed government agencies and massive external debt require cuts to subsidies and services, often leading to more, at least interim hardship for the people. Reform is no quick fix. While there is 
broad agreement between the authorities and staff about the key reform priorities, the latest IMF report on Sudan notes, public tolerance for painful reforms is fragile given prolonged economic hardship. That could apply to many places in the region. You can read more at El Monitor's Week in Review. Now to our guest today, Michael Mick Patrick Mulroy is a former Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for the Middle East, a retired paramilitary operations officer in the CIA's Special Activities Center, and a retired U.S. Marine. He is a Senior Fellow for National Security and Defense Policy with the Middle East Institute, a National Security Analyst for ABC News, and the Lobo Institute's co-founder. My conversation with Mick Mulroy begins now. Mick, welcome to On the Middle East. Andrew, thanks for having me. You've had an amazing career of service. Uh, What can you tell us about how those early experiences in your career as a paramilitary operations officer and the CIA's Special Activities Center and as a U.S. Marine may have shaped your understanding and engagement on not only national security policy, but the Middle East in particular. So as you might guess, I can't talk too specifically about paramilitary operations in the CIA, but I can give you some general ideas so your listeners would understand uh, basically what they are, uh, what we are, and then and then give you some ideas of how the activities I had during that time really shaped the way I view the Middle East when I went into the role at the Pentagon. Great. So paramilitary operations officer is a hybrid between an intelligence officer, as you'd think uh, uh, commonly, like an intel officer in the CIA, plus a military person. So most of our folks in in the center, Special Activity Center, Center, as you referenced, come out of the military, mostly SOCOM units. So you're thinking uh, Green Berets, like recon Marines or MARSOC Marines and SEALs. I was, a, I was your standard issued infantry Marine. So there's a few of us, but predominantly it's it's from the, uh, from the uh, SOCOM cadre. Then we go through the whole training to be a case officer, or now they call an ops officer. And then we have our own training to be the paramilitary side of that, which as you guess is all geared around special operations. Uh, it's special operations under Title 50, which is what the CIA operates under, and it's covert. So it's different than the military in the sense that it's it's uh, deniable. It is usually much smaller in scope. Um, we have much less of an imprint or a footprint on the ground. Uh, and like I said, you can, you can deny the operations, whether it's our government or their government who wishes not to talk about our presence. So it's, it's, uh, it's a very unique uh, part of our national security spectrum. Um, that plays a valuable role, but you know, at the end of the day, it's just one of the tools that we have at our disposal. So um, I was not unusual in the sense that my generation uh, came on. Um, essentially, we're all talking about Plan Columbia back then, and then 9/11 hit. Nobody talked about Plan Columbia. Uh, so the the initial push, and I'll talk in general because I can't talk specifics, but as you can see from open sources. Um, Afghanistan and the initial teams that went in there uh, from my uh, unit and the CIA in general, and then um, U.S. military 
Army Special Operations and particularly Fifth Group, uh, went in together, worked with the Northern Alliance to top of the Taliban. That quickly turned into mobile teams, which were teams that went all around the country um, looking for remnants of Al-Qaeda and trying to help the government establish some kind of security order. And then there was this series of bases which go on today. And I was involved in um, most of that. Uh, but after, after that, I went to Iraq, uh, the, the CIA, which is uh, a couple of books written by it, on it, uh, went in early to Northern Iraq with uh, Kurdish uh, partners and both launched an attack that defeated a sizable terrorist group called Ansar al-Islam, precursor right. to al-Qaeda in Iraq. Yep. Um, and then because we were unable to get the 4th Infantry Division in there, uh, the, the effort turned into um, defeating Saddam's conventional forces in the north and essentially a small handful of CIA and um, 10th Group uh, Special Forces working alongside the Peshmerga, you know, fighting forces of uh, the Kurdish region, uh, defeated Saddam's conventional uh, 13 divisions, I believe it was, and then uh, marched all the way to Baghdad. So uh, like we were talking before the podcast started, a lot of the relationships uh, were really useful later as the deputy for the Middle East came from that experience. And then in general, a lot of the relationships that we leveraged to launch the ISIS, defeat ISIS campaign in Syria came from the relationships that existed, um, not only between me, of course, because I was just uh, one member of the team, but the, the military relationships with the with the Kurds and the other agency folks that were with me all all benefited from that initial um, uh, invasion activity in the north that really benefited our overall national security. And to me, really showed how regular warfare can play, uh, not just to counterterrorism, but also the higher priorities of rogue state actors and even uh, global power competitors. You know, you mentioned, and we were, we were indeed talking about relationships and especially this, this experience you described, the on the ground experience, the sensitive and vital nature of, of the missions you were involved in and the partners you engage with, uh, that trust develops over the course of such a relationship and in such a, a, a context where there's a lot of risk and uh, lots of uh, high stakes, and uh, that matters. Now, let me move to your position as Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for the Middle East. That's when you and I met a few years ago. And if I'm not mistaken, that's the most senior civilian policy position in the Pentagon that deals all day, every day with the Middle East, the region in its entirety. Tell us just a little about that job, what it entailed, and your reflections on working on Middle East policy at the Pentagon under Secretaries Mattis and Esper during the Trump administration. Yeah, so, um, you know, I had, I was getting uh, to the end of my time at the CIA, I was going to retire, I did retire, and my partner, who I now work with, was had two more years to retire uh, as, a, as a Navy SEAL, and he was in the JSOC component. So I had two years, basically, um, to look to do something that would benefit us, and we focused on conflict issues, resolution, and trying to end them. Um, so this opportunity came up. I'm not a political person. I'm nonpartisan, apolitical. Uh, and apparently that's what Secretary Mattis was looking for. He was looking for people who spent their careers in national security to fill a lot of these 
key policy roles. So I didn't know if that's what I wanted to do, but I actually, I asked my son, who's also a Marine, a, a reconnaissance Marine in the reserves, you know, should I take it? And he's like, you got a chance to work for General Mattis, you got to take it. So it's like, okay, well, now you put it that way. So it really was, um, it was, it was an honor in many ways. Um, I was always the guy on the ground thinking, if only I was making policy, I could fix this. So not really true, but you know, now I got my opportunity. So it's not like the call, the dog that caught the car. Um, but no, it was, uh, it was a challenge for sure. It is, it was a turbulent time in many ways in the Middle East. Not that that's unusual, but we had uh, opposing views on policy. Um, Secretary Mattis, I think, was uh, exceptional. Uh, and I think Secretary Esper, when he took over, um, really did the best job he possibly could of. And he was also an extraordinarily qualified person. But directly to your question, yes. Um, a lot of my counterparts at State Department um, have one or two countries, whereas the DASD for the Middle East um, has 15. So it's a very holistic view of the Middle East in the sense that everything you're responsible for uh, there. So you can't just focus on one country. You have to really um, look at how they all fit together and what's in the best interest of the United States and our long-term relationship with allies and partners. Um, because that, you know, from the Defense Department, and I think for the overall security of the nation, is, is critically important that we don't, we don't uh, uh, take those for granted and that we are in a constant state of trying to improve them um, and, and, and make them more effective. You know, let's get into some of these policy issues uh, you dealt with then and I know continue to be involved with. President Trump has uh, continued in his final days uh, to seek to draw down forces in the region. And this seems to be in line mm -hmm with a, a sentiment in our country regarding a fatigue with endless wars. U.S. forces have been in Afghanistan since 2001, Iraq since 2003. On the one hand, uh, there is, I think, an understandable fatigue by um, Americans about why we're still there with so many priorities at home, even before the COVID virus. And on the other, military basing and security partnerships are more the norm, then the exception, uh, the U.S. still has bases and extensive partnerships in and with uh, Germany, South Korea, the Philippines, Japan, as well as forward deployments in the Middle East going back to the 91 Gulf War. So help us understand the U.S. commitments in the region as you see them, specifically Iraq and Syria, but more broadly, and why you might resist the characterization of these engagements if, if you would if you do resist them that characterization is endless wars yeah you're right so i do have a i do have an issue with the term endless wars um for several reasons the first you know if the united states withdraws from these wars it's not like they end perhaps they end for us in a way but they certainly aren't going to end for the people on the ground and, and all the horrible humanitarian issues that come out of it. So I'd like to point that out first. I would also like to point out that, I mean, I, I understand the sentiment. I mean, I've been, I've lost a lot of friends. Uh, you know, I have a bracelet that has 32 names on it. Um, and they all, you know, died in the line of duty after 9-11. Uh, so I get it. I get that 100%. And I already referenced it. I have a uh, child or an adult child in the, in the service. So I get that. I would say that we've actually done a 
a good job collectively of trying to reduce our footprint to a level that's more compatible with our national security objectives. So if you look at Iraq, for example, we had 150,000 troops there in 2008. We're, we're going to uh, 2,500. So uh, I think we should really rely on the commanders on the ground, the military commanders, obviously our embassies, our ambassadors that are there and our uh, head of our intelligence, which in these countries would be the chief of station, to really give their best assessment on the numbers that we need to cover our objectives, to, to help work with our partner forces. And that really should be the numbers that we go with, not, not a politically derived number that's based on a politically derived timeline. So, and I, and politicians have been doing this long before this administration. So I think that's, that carries over. Uh, but I do think that um, it is not in our interest to withdraw uh, our forces from a lot of these areas. You already referenced you know, we probably started with leaving forces in Germany and Japan to ensure that they did not, um, you know, become aggressive again and, and threaten their neighbors. Uh, now it's not about that at all. I don't think we're at all worried about Japan and Germany, you know, uh, for their past uh, indiscretions. We're worried, we want to be there because it's in our strategic interest to have four deployed forces, right? I don't think that's necessarily not the case in the Middle East. You know, we have basings in, in, in a lot of the Middle Eastern countries that are key to our um, basically our competition, like the national defense strategy. Russia and China are doing a lot more in Africa and Middle East than they ever did before. It wouldn't make any sense to me to just withdraw our forces because we're ceding you know, the competitive space to them. Right at a time when China's building you know, giant naval bases in Horn Africa and, and places like that. So I think we do. I th I'm a big believer in the national defense strategy that we put together in 2018 that prioritizes great power competition, then the right uh, rogue states, and then terrorism. But all those things we're benefiting from by having a presence in the Middle East. And I don't want to get to a situation where we simply withdraw from places like Somalia entirely or Syria entirely, and uh, the next generation has to fight just to get back to where we are now. Uh, I think that would be a mistake. One of the reasons for these ongoing relationships and partnerships is the continued challenge of the Islamic State. Now, the Trump administration claimed in 2019 that ISIS was territorially defeated, and that's something the U.S. can be proud of. I've also said and written many times that the U.S.-led de-ISIS coalition, which you worked on extensively, uh, and that gets a lot of credit, I still think it doesn't get the credit it deserves. I mean, the U.S. formed an international and regional diplomatic, military, and counterterrorism coalition with bipartisan support in the United States across administrations, fluid U.S. civil-military partnership. We had Ryan Crocker on the show uh, a few months ago talking about this. All at a time when many were claiming the U.S. was withdrawing from world affairs and when ISIS controlled great parts of territory in Syria and Iraq. And, and we won, we were successful. But as readers of a monitor know well from our correspondents in the field, ISIS is still doing its bloody business in Iraq and Syria and elsewhere. They're not gone. So how do you see this threat from the Islamic State to both Iraq and Syria in the coming years? And what can and should we be doing about it? So to start with, I, I, I agree that we should be more um, complimentary to those that 
put this together and the effort as a whole was successful. We shouldn't, we shouldn't just skip that over because it's a positive, right? Um, I know we tend to focus on the negatives because you learn more from them, but you can learn from this positive in that, and that's one of the reasons why I mentioned the early um, involvement with us and the Kurds uh, in, in Iraq. You know, I mentioned to you before the podcast that when I went back as a DASD, one of the most senior persons in Iraq right now, when I first met him, referred to me in, as my Kurdish nickname, right? Which was Mikasur, which because I had, uh, when I have a beard, it used to be red at least. Right. Um, so it means Mick the Red, right? So um, I bring that up because, you know, a lot of people with me are shocked because it was, it was a very uh, informal way of meeting somebody who was then the president of Barack. Um, because partnerships matter. Partnerships, relationships with individuals matter. And this wasn't just unique to me. I was, like I said, it's just one of many. Uh, I think a lot of the people that uh, were on that initial team had lifelong and still do relationships with key and very influential members of Iraq. So, uh, and that also led to uh, the initial lash up with uh, General Mazaloum, the YPG, and what became uh, the core officer corps, if it will, of the SDF which I think deserves a majority of the credit. Uh, lost 11,000 uh, soldiers fighting, as you say, to liberate millions of uh, Iraqi and Syrian civilians from the grip of uh, ISIS's rule. So um, I think it was a model. Uh, we had very few people. Uh, the army uh, component of uh, JSOC led the way and were exceptional. And I think it's something that we should look as a model to potentially duplicate in the future. Like, like I mentioned about the, the Iraqi Kurds, you know, going into Saddam and also um, the uh, terrorist group, that's, that's what the SDF has done. I mean, they've, they've, they've liberated a massive amount of territory and, and people, but they've also been a pretty substantial uh, leverage point for our diplomats like uh, Jim Jeffrey and Joel Rayburn and everybody that's working on the State Department side of the Syria issue because we've established a presence, we've built a strong partner, We've liberated areas, and although the DOD doesn't have any authority to be there to counter Assad or Iran or Russia, our presence actually does just that. So, um, you know, from my perspective, it is a, it is a success. Uh, the people on the ground deserve uh, most of the credit, but it's something that we, if we just walked away from, um, we've really missed it because ISIS is still a threat. There is multiple prisons that we've uh, basically given to the SDF to control and actually pay for. I think the international community should do a lot more in assisting in that. And, and then there's really large uh, IDP camps, right? With, I think, uh, Al Hall's about 70,000 plus, 50,000 of them are women and children. And a lot of those children are the orphans of former ISIS fighters. So um, we really need to focus on what we can do as an international community, it shouldn't be all in the US, to try to turn their way of thinking so that they don't become you know, ISIS 2.0, which I think is inevitable if we don't do anything about it. Uh, ISIS is still a threat. It's gonna reconstitute. Um, it's one of those things that I wish, I wish it would be like the end of World War II, we'd be signing uh, peace treaties on battleships, but I think everybody in your audience knows that's not gonna be the case. So the key for us will be maintaining a presence, um, doing everything we can to limit our exposure to casualties, uh, but also enabling our partners so they can do the fighting as they can, they can uh, liberate their, and maintain the security of their own areas. 
I think that's going to be the key in the future to ensuring that we don't have a situation like we did when we kind of precipitously withdraw the truth from Iraq that led to the rise of the ISIS caliphate. Um, we shouldn't do that again. Mick, you were among a group of very distinguished former senior American officials arguing against designating the Houthis of Yemen, who are backed by Iran, as a foreign terrorist organization. Uh, you, you and the group write that doing so would end up hurting relief efforts for Yemenis and would ultimately be counterproductive to the UN brokered political process. Uh, the UN has noted that this is the worst, Yemen, that is the worst humanitarian crisis in the world at this time. Help us understand why you and others feel strongly about this. You point out in the letter that, of course, you are by no means an advocate for Iran or the Houthi position, uh, and how you're thinking about moving the Yemen process ahead, Yemen peace process, that is. Yes, Andrew, and as you point out, I think uh, the International Red Cross is predicting that Yemen will remain and to be the most uh, horrific of humanitarian tragedies in 2021. Um, so to start back when I was in the Pentagon, we had an effort there it was initiated by Secretary Mattis to come up with a comprehensive plan for Yemen. It was called the Yemen Steering Initiative. Um, it was generated by the DOD, but it was not all security. In fact, security was simply a part of it. It included diplomacy, economics, humanitarian aid, and then the security. And it was done in cooperation with the State Department, all sorts of experts around the world. Um, unfortunately, it wasn't, it was somewhat enacted on by the, by, uh, the UN. Um, and then one of the signatories to the letter you referenced and myself uh, are really looking at doing that again with hope that it would be supported by the incoming administration. Uh, in a nutshell, like I said, it's a comprehensive plan to try to bring Yemen out of a uh, completely failed state into a fragile state and then on to being a functional state. Um, and it, yes, it does require international funding, but the idea is that if we have a plan that people can all agree to, that they're more willing to you know, fund certain elements of it because they know that it's not just being wasted. So that's an ongoing effort. Um, out of that, and to, to your point, yes, we definitely don't support the Houthi cause. I mean, it's stated in their in their mantra, death to Americans and Israel. So, I mean, there's no doubt about that. Um, but what we're concerned about is if you designate them as a terrorist organization, it could disrupt the peace talks that are ongoing with the United Nations, led by Martin Griffith. And there is all sorts of components of being designated as a terrorist organization that would preclude particularly Americans from providing any aid. I mean, you might have heard the story, you can't even like buy some coffee. Well, it's 70 plus percent of people in Yemen right now require uh, some kind of aid to live. So there's a big con uh, concern that this uh, might feel good because uh, of the Houthis uh, sentiments toward us, it could actually uh, derail the whole peace process at least for the time until it's reversed, if it's reversed, if it's even done, we don't even know if that's gonna happen, but we wanted to at least record our opposition before any decisions were made. But we think that would not be helpful. Uh, we want to see the peace process go forward. There is no military solution in Iran and uh, Yemen. Uh, 
hopefully, I know we're getting into Iran, uh, we'll have an incentive to do less malign activity there, which would also uh, improve the chances of a peace agreement that would hold. And then this this idea, the steering initiative that we're working on would would kick in then, where countries would contribute either money or training or something to try to bring this country out of its current state. Mick, uh, before we do get into Iran, I want to mention uh, Saudi Arabia. Uh, I've always felt, and I think it's it's pretty clear that uh, Saudi will be key to any peace process uh, and reconstruction in Yemen when those days come. Uh, the Saudi aid will be vital. And many times when we talk about Yemen, you know, you begin by saying, here, here you've got a country of about, what is it, 24 million people. I mean, this is a big country going through a massive war and humanitarian crisis, and it's going to be a long time to put it back together once you have a, a political solution to the problem. And, and the Saudis are going to be key to that. Tell us how you see the Saudi role in Yemen and maybe a word on the U.S.-Saudi security partnership in the region going forward. Yeah, that's a really good point, Andrew, because I understand some, you know, some of the criticism about the way the Saudis have, have led their campaign there. And it's, you know, we don't ever want to see loss of civilian life. Um, I think we've done a good job, at least from the DOD perspective, of trying to improve the way they run air campaigns. So they would have less, if not none, would be the preference. Uh, but we don't even have no civilian casualties in our air campaign. Uh, but I do understand the concern. We, we, and my bosses have been on Capitol Hill discussing. We actually had one briefing with all 100 centers on this satellite coalition issue in, in Yemen. Um, I think we'd all like to see uh, that group. But one thing I've also noticed, uh, at, when talking to people about Yemen and the way forward in this, in this long-term plan, be it ours or somebody else's, is everybody acknowledges that the Saudis are going to be key to it, right? Uh, they, they put a lot of money into the humanitarian relief efforts in, in Yemen, and that deserves to be recognized. And they will have to do the same in the long-term plan as well. Um, so, and, and no matter what the person that I'm talking to, what political side of the aisle they are in, or no side of the aisle like myself, um, they all acknowledge that. And I think it's important that we acknowledge that, that we need Saudi uh, involvement um, for resources and knowledge um, to be successful uh, in, in this long-term plan. So yeah, absolutely. As far as the, the long-term Saudi-US uh, relationship, I think much like our relationship with UAE, it's incredibly important uh, for both countries uh, in the region. We would love to see nothing more than a prosperous, um, completely stable Middle East. And I know that we have some work to do on that, but uh, one of the ways to do that is to have strong partners with shared visions that we work together toward. And I think um, the Saudi relationship with the United States may be adjusted in the incoming administration. And I'm working with a transition team. I don't know if you know that, but um, I can't speak for them at all, but I think they, they will look at some of the things, um, some more controversial aspects. But either way, I think going forward, it's going to be a very strong relationship. It needs to be, it's in the benefit of both countries. Mick, let's get into um, Iran. President-elect Biden has said that he would like to re-enter 
the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, the Iran Nuclear Deal or JCPOA, if Iran is in compliance, which it is not at this point, do you agree with, with this course of action and, and put it in the context of how you assess the Trump administration's approach to Iran? Uh, the Trump administration withdrew from the JCPOA in May 2018, imposed maximum pressure policies, reimposed and imposed many new sanctions, which have taken quite a toll on the Iranian economy. And um, how do you see this playing out? What do you expect from the Biden administration and what should we expect from Iran in the year ahead? So I think when we were first reviewing whether to get out, um, everybody agreed that it wasn't, it was an imperfect agreement. I don't know if you could ever expect to have a perfect agreement, international agreement on this type of topic anyway, but certainly there were issues with it. Like it didn't address uh, the Malayan activity, the use of proxy forces to attack our partners and allies, for example. Uh, but from the DOD perspective, uh, we thought it was, you know, better than nothing, and nothing would be exiting the agreement. And that's, but you know, the decision was made, and we exited the agreement, and that's what we had to deal with. The maximum pressure campaign, which is was obviously, as you referenced, run by the State Department, was effective in the sense that it caused maximum pressure on the economy of Iran. Uh, I mean, I think it got to a point where it was lower than the height of the Iran-Iraq war. Uh, that was one of the statistics that stuck in my mind. So it was successful in that. However, uh, malign activity increased, as you probably recall, with attacks uh, against you know, uh, Saudi oil facilities, tankers uh, in UAE, uh, oil tankers, ships, uh, and even an attack directly on one of our unmanned aircraft. So that increased. And if you look at the storage uh, requirements in JCP, there were uh, pretty dramatically exceeded. So I recall it's about 300 kilograms of enriched uranium uh, right when we decided to leave the agreement, and now we're at 24, 2,500 kilograms uh, held by the Iranians. So uh, that's going in the wrong direction. The uh, uh, heavy water storage has gone in the wrong direction. So I think empirically, if you looked at it, um, they've, they've gone closer to development of a nuclear weapon, which was the whole purpose of the JCPOA. And their malign activities uh, and, and their ballistic uh, missile capabilities has probably also gone in the right direction. So uh, I don't view this as a political issue. I view, you know, you have a strategy, you do your best you can, and if it's not working, you jump. Um, and I think, uh, I think the incoming administration will look to do that. I hope they include uh, not just going back into some version of the JCP. I hope they include the use of proxy forces in the, in the, malicious activity that they've been doing and attacking, say, Israel, Saudi Arabia, and all that with their, uh, through that, I think that needs to be included. Uh, but overall, we want to get back to an agreement that incentivizes, you know, reducing sanctions for activities, proven activities by the Iranians on all those fronts. And I think if we can do that, and if that's the, if that's the ultimate goal of the incoming administration, that will be a good thing for U.S. national security and stable, stabilization in the region. Is it your sense that uh, America's partners in the region, Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, Israel, uh, will be with us in engaging Iran and a new Iran nuclear deal and uh, are ready to talk about those broader issues of Iran's activities in the region, which have been 
concerning to us and concerning to our friends? Well, I can't say exactly what they'll think, but I think if we if we couch it where we're going to address those other issues, proxy forces, uh, their activities in the region, um, and the ballistic missile development to a point where it threatens more and more of the region, I think they'll be more inclined to come with us and to uh, and to endorse it even at the end. Uh, that's yet to be seen, but I think I think it's worth talking about because I would simply pose the question to them. If we're going to stay on the current um, course, and they actually develop enough uh, enriched uranium to develop a nuclear weapon and a means to deliver it, how is that beneficial uh, to their security? And I, I don't think they would think that that was. So I hope that this is uh, discussed in the in the context that includes all those things, and that they can get on board and support that. And of course, from Iran's perspective, they would have sanctions relief. The economy would come back to life hopefully and they could rejoin the community of nations because at the end of the day that is better for the Iranian people uh our partners in the region and the united states i mean they're a incredibly uh, sophisticated country with an amazing history that's part of all of mankind's history humankind's history um we really should have the goal of getting them back into the community of nations but they have to do things to, to make that happen and i think covering those three main areas of nuclear weapons ambition and not having an ambition, uh, malign activities, proxy forces, and, and the development of uh, advanced ballistic weaponry that can threaten other nations. They all have to be addressed, but if they are addressed, I think it would be in the interest of everybody involved. Mick Mulroy, thank you for your time and insights based upon your impressive career of service in the region. Really enjoyed our conversation today. Thank you, Andrew. I enjoyed it, too. Thanks for having me. We will be right back after this short break. I'm Ben Kaspit, a monitor veteran columnist reporting from Israel, one of the world's major news and action suppliers of all times, comparing to its tiny size. I've been covering and analyzing the political, diplomatic, and military arenas in Israel for over 34 years. My best-selling biography, The Netanyahu Years, was out two years ago. I covered seven prime ministers, one major war, two intifadas, one prime minister's assassination, two and a half peace treaties, four military operations in Gaza, and it's not letting up anytime soon. I am glad to invite you to On Israel, our brand new podcast, where we will discuss major events in Israel and its surroundings, talk to decision makers, leaders and analysts, and try to understand the chaos that comes with the territory of Israel and the Middle East. You will never have a dull moment with us. See you soon here on Israel Al Monitor. That was an outstanding conversation just now with Mick Mulroy, whose experience in the region speaks to the value of U.S. relationships and partnerships between people and between states and the need for U.S. staying power to both prevent a resurgent ISIS, to help map a political settlement to the war in Yemen, and to craft a new Iran deal. Thank you all for listening to On the Middle East, and thanks to our production team of Phil Calabro of El Monitor and Beowulf Roshlin of Two Square Media Productions.
Wishing all of our listeners best wishes for the new year. We will be back next week in 2021. And in the meantime, please sign up for this and our other All Monitor podcast on Israel at your favorite podcast platform. Thank you.